couple of years ago, Google uh, put out a, a form that people in Europe could fill out for you to be able to remove certain search results from a, a Google search that involved you. You, you fill out this form, you send them in the, the websites and the search things that come up, you send them proof of your identification and things that you think are embarrassing, things that would be a, a harm uh, to your reputation, your family's reputation, things that you think might jeopardize uh, your, uh, your job, your aspirations for, uh, for politics or, or, or how it might affect your, uh, your family name, you can ask and request that those things be removed. But it can only happen in, in Europe, not here. But if, if it was possible, would you do it? Are there, are there things in your life that as you reflect back on, on what you've done, not just those goofy middle school yearbook pictures, but actions, thoughts, decisions that you've made, people that you've hurt and that you've harmed, would you want that removed so that no one would see it as they do a search on you again? It would never need to come up. You would never need to fear that coming up and, and causing you to potentially lose a, a, a job or a scholarship, the schools that you want to go to. What about, in addition to that, not just things that people might find, but, but things that you might have thought that aren't just things of embarrassment and, and guilt, but of deep shame that haunt you, that weigh over you. Maybe it's things that your, your family has done. Is there anybody sitting at your table this past week that you don't want anybody else to know you're related to for what they've done? Or maybe there were, were people who in years past had sat across from you, but they weren't there anymore because they're not allowed to come around your family because of the shame that they have brought. This morning, we're going to start looking at uh, the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1. Genealogy is kind of the, the Google search of the ancient world. And Matthew, as he's writing this account of Jesus' life and teachings, he gives us this genealogy. And he tells us that the, the, the genealogy that he's given us is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. See, Matthew's writing about Jesus, the Christ, not a last name, it's a title, the anointed one, Christ in Greek, Messiah in Hebrew, the long-awaited king who would come. And But Matthew, as he's giving us this account of Jesus' history, of his genealogy, of his ancestors, he does some strange things. He doesn't scrub it. He doesn't clean it up. One of the, the strange things that we'll see is that he, he includes women in the genealogy. This wasn't something that was typically done. Now, maybe we, 
if you're, you're going to kind of break the pattern of the normal way people re- record genealogies and you're wanting to present Jesus as this great Christ, this Messiah, this ruler and deliverer, if you are going to break with, with the norms of the way things are going to be done, you're going to include women in this, maybe you would choose women that would elevate his status. Regal, rich, powerful, famous women that when people read it, they were like, yes, this is the genealogy of a king. But Matthew doesn't do that. He overlooks women like Sarah, Abraham's wife. She's not included. Instead, he, he chooses women like Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, women with questionable pasts, questionable genealogies themselves, actions and things that they have done that have the potential to, for some to completely wreck his reputation. Why include them? What does it tell us, not just about what Matthew wants to communicate to us about Jesus, the king, but remember, Jesus is no mere man. He's God in the flesh who purposed to redeem a people. And the reason these ladies are in his genealogies is because Jesus says, I want them to be. I chose them. What does that tell us about the heart of our Savior, about his purposes and his workings in the world? That's what we want to look at over these next four weeks. This morning we're going to start in Matthew to read our, uh, the portion of the genealogy that gets us up to Tamar. And then we'll read about uh, her uh, account of her life in uh, Genesis chapter 38. So if you would, please follow along with me here. In Matthew, uh, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you're following along in one of the Black Bibles, this is on page 807. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, by Tamar. If you would, look over Genesis chapter 38. It's on page 32 if you're in the Black Bible. It happened at that time, this is immediately following Joseph being sent off by his brothers, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. uh, Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. 
But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and, so, uh, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, Well, what pledge should I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where's the cult prostitute who was at Enaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I've not found her. Also, the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, the, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you would send your son to redeem and save your people. We pray this morning that through... Uh, these genealogies through reading and digging into your word that we would know more deeply the heart of our Savior for his people, the heart of our Savior that we might live as his people. 
Comfort us with the hope of the gospel, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. As we dig in and see Tamar's life, we find there's a lot about her that if you read her name, knew anything about her in a genealogy, eyebrows would be raised. Maybe people would cough. Who is this woman? Why? Why is she included in the genealogy? She would be highlighted, focused, drawn on her by Matthew. What does it show us about the heart of our God? First, one of the things that we see about Tamar is she's an outsider. Look in verses 2 and 6. Judah leaves his brothers and he goes to dwell with his friend Hira. And there he sees the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. So here we see Judah marrying a Canaanite. Then later in verse 6, after when it's time for Er, his firstborn, to have a, a wife, he finds a wife for him, and that is when he brings Tamar into the family. Another Canaanite. Outsiders. Outsiders to the people of God. Uh, you see, God's uh, intention for his people uh, was to, to, to guard and care for them. Uh, that the promise... The hope in him, the one true and living God, would go forth to the nations. And so by forbidding his people to marry uh, those who were uh, of the nations, he didn't have anything against them because they were from the nations. It was their unfaithfulness. It was their false worship and their hoping in these other gods. Unlike Abraham before him, who sent Isaac, or sent his servant back, to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac. Unlike Jacob, who instead uh, Esau found women of the the land to marry, Jacob as well goes back uh, to the homeland of his mother to find a bride. But here, Judah seeks a wife for himself from the Canaanites, and he seeks a wife for his son, Tamar, from among the Canaanites an outsider. The people of God later would look back on this. Uh, There had been growing animosity as they forgot their place among the people as being those who were to take the good news of the message to the nations, and it came all about themselves. And so anybody who wasn't from Israel, they ignored and turned a hard heart to and viewed them as outsiders and did not interact with them at all. Uh, Here, We see Jesus, including outsiders. Tamar is just the first of many of these ladies that we will look at who are outsiders to God's people, yet he pursues them. And we see these outsiders exercising incredible faith and hope and trust in the God of Israel and hoping in his promise. What does it show and tell us that Jesus has always had a heart 
for the outsiders. From the beginning, the message was, Abraham, I am going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and all the families of the earth will be blessed through you, through hope in the promised one who will come. God has a a mind and a, a heart towards those who are on the outside. Here he gives Tamar a great place of honor, mentioning her as one of these few matriarchs that are mentioned in the genealogy. Do any of you feel like outsiders? Feel as if you don't belong? As you maybe came to faith in Jesus later in life. You look at other people around you who you hear them tell their story and they come from, uh, they have parents, grandparents, great-grandparents who knew and hoped and trusted and walked with Christ, and you would say, that's not my story. Do I belong here? Everybody that I'm around seems to know the Bible backward and forward. These names you've been mentioning, Abraham, Sarah, Judah, I don't have a clue who they are. I know who Jesus is, and I've seen little kids at this church seem to know the names of these people. What does that mean about me? Do I belong? Do I belong in the people of God if that is not my history and that is not my past? It's not just the things that I don't know. What about the things that I've done? But don't you see here the good news of the gospel is that Jesus extends and pursues those who are outsiders and brings them in Because notice, Tamar's not a footnote. She's right in there with everyone else. Jesus isn't ashamed to identify with her and saying, I am related to Tamar, the Canaanite outsider, and I want everybody to know because I value her. I love her. I care for her. And if that is you who feel like an outsider, Good news of the gospel of the coming of Christ is he has love and compassion and care for you as well. Also, we see here about Tamar, she's not just an outsider, but she's objectified. Look in verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of Yahweh, and he put him to death also. You see, at that time, what was... uh, the was going on is what should have taken place is something called a leveret marriage. When Er died, what was to happen is that his wife, Tamar, was to have been given to Onan, the next brother in line. Uh, Not as property, but to care for her. To make sure that she had uh, sons and daughters who would be able to provide for her so that she would and her offspring would inherit land, still being part of the family, so that they would not go destitute. 
and die of poverty or starvation. See, Onan, what he was supposed to do is to marry Tamar, and the first child that would come would actually be in part of Ayer's line. But Onan wants to have nothing to do with this. You see, Onan doesn't mind the process that goes into making children. We see that here. Onan's more than pleased to many times, it says, notice what it says, that when he went into, whenever he went into his brother's wife, he doesn't mind gratifying himself at Tamar's expense, but what he refuses to do is have offspring for his brother to see and view Tamar with compassion and care, to value her, but instead he only sees her as an object to gratify himself, to use her and her body to meet his gratification and his sexual satisfaction. And he cares about her really at at all. And we see here God judges him and strikes him dead. Tamar, the objectified one, Does anybody care for her? Does anybody value her for more than just her body? Jesus does. God does. Do we not see that? The one who thought that no one cared or valued her for anything other than what she could give, yet Jesus says, Tamar, the outsider, the objectified one, I care for you. I see your pain. I see your hurt. I see that you have been used. And I am going to give you a place of great honor. And you will be part of the line that bears me, the Redeemer and Savior of the world. Have you been used? Have you been objectified? by others who see no value in you other than what they can get from you? Does that leave you in a place of shame and of wondering? Are you really worth more than just your body? Because that's the way you've been treated, have you begun to live as if you don't matter? beginning to also then use your body in ways that just confirm what everybody else believes about you and doing with your body what everybody else does with your body. Maybe it's not in that way. Maybe you have been blessed with, uh, with money and material goods out of God's kindness to you and your hard work. And you seem to have a lot of friends. But the only time they seem to come around is when they want something for from you. They just want your stuff. What you can give them. Your presence. Maybe it's the connections you have in the community because they need a job or a promotion or influence. What if that money goes away? What if those connections go away? 
What if you don't bring gifts this Christmas? How will the grandkids think of you? Do you matter at all? Do you have any worth or any value? It seems like nobody else thinks that's the case. Maybe I don't. Is there anyone who cares for me? Am I worth anything? The good news of the gospel says yes. You are worth more than your body. You are worth more than your stuff. There is one who delights deeply in you, who cares for you, who loves you, not for what you have, but for who you are, and because he has chosen in his grace and in his mercy to place his love upon you. And just like Tamar, he says, I am not ashamed to associate with me. I am not ashamed for any and everyone to know that I am related to you, you are a part of my family, and that I have saved and redeemed you because you have value, not just because you're created in the image of God, but because I love you. That is what Tamar's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy communicates. But also, notice, she's an outcast. Look in verses 11 and 14. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die. And like his brothers, uh, so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And in verse 14, notice what she realizes down the second half of the verse. She saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. Tamar's cast out. Judah has no intention of giving the third son to her. Why? She's damaged goods. She's cursed. Whenever she comes around, bad things happen. Is that true? Is that real? Is there anything wrong with Tamar? No. Who are the ones that were at fault? Er, the wicked one who was struck down by God. Onan, the wicked one who was struck down by God. Because of their perceptions of Tamar, things that they thought in their head but were not true of her, they sent and cast her away. Rumors were flying. No one wanted to have anything to do with her. And Judah sends her off away from the people of promise. You're better off, Tamar, going back to where you came from. Go live with the Canaanites. We don't want you around here. You're nothing but trouble. Are you an outcast? Have you been sent away from your family? Have you been cast off by your friends? Have you even, like Tamar, been given a cold shoulder in the church? Because that is what this is, the Old Testament church. But none of those things were ever true. People's perceptions, their assumptions about you. And you begin to wonder, is there anybody who wants me? Anybody who doesn't want to send me away, but who wants to draw and include and bring me in? The gospel says, yes, there is one. Jesus, who brings in outsiders and the objectified and the outcast and says, I want you to be a part of my family and I'm putting my love upon you. This is the good news of the gospel. Maybe you're here and you're, you're a believer 
And you've been struggling and wrestling lately to wonder, do I really belong as a part of the people of God? The stuff that I've done in my past, where I've come from, the things I've said, the people I've hurt, the acts that I've committed. There's no way that I belong. Look at all these other people. They have it all together. Guess what? Nobody has it all together. We may do a good job of putting out a front on the outside, but we're all in desperate need of Jesus. And Jesus speaks and he says to you, you do belong. My grace and my mercy is for you because I am pursuing people like Tamar and people like you, and I delight to have you as a part of my family. Maybe you're here, you're trying to think about, you're investigating Jesus, who he is, and whether you will follow him or not. And you wonder, in light of your past and the stuff that you've done, the people that you've been around, the things that you've consumed, the lives that you've hurt and wrecked, he'll never want to have anything to do with me. There's no way he would include someone like me in his family. The gospel says, guess what? The good news is, is that you're wrong. And Jesus came to save, and he loves to save people just like you. Maybe you're somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a while, and you've slowly begun to forget that you were an outsider. You were an outcast, and you have now begun to turn your heart away from those who are outsiders and who are, have been objectified and who are outcasts. And you slowly and subtly are denying the truths and the realities of the gospel because we're not living in a way that reflects the heart of our king. Tamar and Jesus' work in her life invites us back to live in consistency with the heart of our Savior and our Redeemer, who would purpose and say, it is no accident that Tamar is in my genealogy. I wanted her there. I purposed her being there. And I have you here for a reason as well. It's interesting. We look at, at, at Tamar's life and... To, to contrast Tamar with these men that she's around in this account is amazing. Because what we're going to see is she is one of great faith, and they are full of unfaithfulness. Just quickly, let's look. We can just review it. It, it doesn't take us long to see this in their lives, does it? Air struck down by God because he's wicked, it tells us in verse 7. What about Onan? In verse 10, what he did was wicked, and the Lord struck him down as well. These men are completely unfaithful. So unfaithful that God says, I'm taking you out now. We're not waiting until Jesus comes back. But then to look at Judah. Judah's story up to this point has been full of one who is living a life of unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. Just before this, he's part of the ones who sells his brother 
to traitors because they're jealous of him. In this account, not only has he married a, a Canaanite, but he's failing to discipline his sons to point them to the character of the God who has saved and redeemed them. Not only that, remember the promise that was given to Abraham, that was given to Isaac, that was given to Jacob and his 12 sons, one of whom is Judah, that the nations will be blessed through you, that you have the privilege of the promised one coming through one of these 12 sons. And Judah says, I don't care. I don't care. I am willing to let my line die out. That's how little I value the promises of God. I would much rather, Tamar, you leave and go away. I'm not going to have any other children through my other sons. And left to Judah, the tribe would have died here. Not only that, Judah completely is a self-righteous hypocrite. Why do you think Tamar dressed up like a prostitute? She knew her father-in-law well. Not was, only was she a pro, dressed as a prostitute, she was dressed as a cult prostitute, it tells us. So not only was Judah involved in sexual immorality, Judah was involved in false worship. And this was common practice for him. He also didn't care to honor his, uh, his son or to care for his daughter-in-law. What he communicated to you is, and again, he completely missed it, I would rather send this woman who I've brought into our family away. You're better off with the Canaanites than you are among the promised people of God, Judah says by his actions. In the late 1700s, right outside of North Carolina, Conrad Reed found a 17-pound sparkly rock in a creek out behind his house. Showed it with his dad. They thought it was cool. Brought it in their cabin. Used it as a doorstop for three years. Finally, his dad started wondering what it was, and so he put it on a wagon and drove it all the way out here to Fayetteville to a jeweler who bought it from him for $3.50, about $63 our money. Guess what it was? Pure gold. In our uh, accounting for inflation, it would have been worth almost $500,000. He had something incredibly valuable, but couldn't see it, ignored it, disregarded it. Judah the most precious thing in the world. The promise of the living God. I will be your God. You will be my people and I'm going to use you to reach the nations. But he doesn't see it. But guess who does? Tamar. Tamar. How in the world this woman saw the beauty of the promises is beyond me. You want to see an incredible picture of faith? Look at no one else but Tamar, who through the unfaithfulness and the abuse and the ridicule and the neglect saw what Er missed, saw what Onan missed, saw what Judah missed, 
and said, this God is worth clinging to and pursuing. His promises are valuable, and I am not going to let them go to the wayside. You may not want to do it, Judah, but I am not letting you off the hook. The promise must come. We may question her, her way about doing it. There is uh, provisions in the Leverite uh, process for those other than the sons to do it. But she knew Judah had no intention. And so she dresses up like a prostitute. And the line continues on. Not just any son, but Perez was one of them. And from Perez, ultimately would come the Redeemer. The Redeemer. Christ comes as a result, working through the fate of Tamar. Are you struggling right now to see the beauty of Jesus and his promises in the church? Are you frustrated with the way that God's people are acting? Are you tempted to walk away? A lot of people are. You can find blog after blog of people who are ridiculing and demeaning the church because of our hypocrisy, our failure to recognize the outcast and to care for them, the way that we objectify and marginalize and hurt people. If you're there right now and you've been hurt by the church, I am very, very sorry. That, that should never have happened. That is to our shame. We are in the wrong. But might I encourage you to look to where the fate of Tamar is looking? To Tamar's God? To Jesus? We've made a wreck of things, but Jesus is still worth it. Hope, rest, look, cling, and trust in Him. And for us, the church, May we not live like Judas and heirs and Onans, casting off the privilege of the promise being upon us. Do you know that the hope of the nations has called you to be his? And you have the privilege of living so that the world will come to know Jesus, the Savior of outcasts, the savior of the objectified, the savior of uh, the outsider. Let's look to Christ in faith and rest and hope in the good news of the gospel because this Jesus who came is the same Jesus who is coming to redeem and save his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. Uh, we thank you uh, for the hope that we can have in you. We thank you for saving us into your family. Uh, please continue to turn our hearts and our minds that we would cling to you, rest in you, and live for you. In Christ's name, amen.